as I was gone the last couple of weeks, I was thinking about how many messages do I have left in Second Peter? Uh, what will we do next? These kinds of things. And uh, I was drawn back to verse 13 again in the entirety of chapter 3. And I just want to read verse 13 again for you this morning. And then uh, kind of use that as a beginning place to branch off to other Scriptures, which again will bring this incredible future hopefully before our eyes. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter writes again, but according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. One of the problems that afflicts a lot of people today is the problem of myopia, which is nearsightedness. And if you can't read that on the screen, you probably have it. (laughs) So, nearsightedness means basically that we can see things clearly that are close to us, but the farther off it gets, the light, and it shines and focuses that light on the very back wall of your eye on your retina. And so the light comes together and pinpoints on the retina and you can see things clearly. When you're nearsighted, the cornea is a bit warped and it focuses the light in front of the retina in the back of your eye so you don't see things clearly. So distance objects appear blurry. Percent of the population were nearsighted. They struggle with this particular uh, vision problem. But they also indicate that in the year 2050, 50% of the world's population will suffer from myopia. So we're moving from 28% 10 years ago to 50%, half of the world's population will be nearsighted by the year 2050. So this is opia or nearsightedness has been explained that by the year 2050, and it's occurring today of course, that people are spending less time outdoors and more time in front of screens. Either your telephone or your computer screen. And so your eyes are constantly focusing on what is near. And we don't go outside enough where we can see the trees and see the sky and see the things that are far off. And so we're training our eye. In other words, because people focus so much on what is near and right in front of them and don't look off into the distance, their eyes gradually lose the ability to see things clearly in the distance. I'm really not I'm not an eye doctor and I'm not I'm not really here to talk about physical nearsightedness, but that leads me to a greater malady within the church that afflicts probably I would say at least ninety five percent of us. And that is spiritual nearsightedness. Because we focus on everything that's near at hand and rarely do we lift up our eyes 
and see the glory of the distant heaven that awaits us. And because we rarely lift up the eyes of our faith to gaze upon the glory that is coming, that is in the future, the distant future, I don't know how many months, years, or decades that that might be, but we're training our eyes all the more to always focus on the here and now. What's always around us. And because of that, we, we grow more blurry in our ability to attain the blessings that come from seeing the glory in heaven that lies ahead. So as a result of that, our spiritual myopia brings various sufferings into our spiritual condition. Our faith will grow weaker. We will lose our hope. We become more vulnerable to discouragement, to fear, to worry, because we're not gazing at the glory that is off in the distance yet to come. So what Peter has been doing in Second Peter chapter 3 is he's been trying to help their nearsightedness gaze out so they can see more clearly what's off into the distance. The second coming of our Lord and the new heavens and the new earth that He has promised to all who love Him. So basically what we're going to do is to kind of use Peter as a launching point and just go through a number of other verses that are some of my favorites. You probably have your favorites. But just to bring the glory of the future, the glory of heaven before our eyes afresh, to hopefully help get us out of that nearsightedness and help bring us into more of a 2020 spiritual vision where we can see both clearly and attain the blessings from it. So eschatology, the study of the future, is always designed to have a present sanctifying effect. It's not just for theologians to argue on which view of the future is correct. But it's to understand the basic truths of what God has promised in the future so that that can impact our life today in the here and now. And that's why in verse 14, Peter says after he refers to the promise that we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, there's always a therefore that follows after these incredible passages about the future glory. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Because we have a new heavens and a new earth awaiting us, therefore, Live in peace. Live spotlessly for Christ. Live a blameless life for His glory. So this is what Peter wants to emphasize. And so I would like for us to, again, use this passage somewhat as a springboard to launch our faith onward and upward to see the benefit and the blessing of overcoming our natural myopic condition so that we might gaze more regularly upon the glory to come in the future so that it might impact our life today. So let's, uh, let's start on this. Let's uh, 
Turn to John chapter 14. Just some of the verses I think that uh, can encourage us to remind us that there's far more than just what's in this life that we look forward to a life to come in glory. So this is back in John chapter 14. This is in part of the uh, upper room discourse. Jesus is going to be crucified the following morning. So He's with His disciples or celebrating the Passover. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. And He has told His disciples some very troubling news. He has told them that He's leaving them. What? You're leaving? You're our Messiah. You're bringing the kingdom. You're going to overthrow the Romans and and elevate Israel over all the nations. You're leaving? On top of that, He's told His disciples, one of you is going to betray Me. And Peter, who is on the other side of the table, motioned to John, who is reclining on our Lord's breast, as they don't sit in chairs around the table, they're all table was low, they're reclining on uh, cushions, on pillows. And Peter's across the table, and, and he, he motions to John, who is going to do this? Who's going to betray the Lord? So that was disturbing. And then on top of that, the Lord tells Peter he's going to deny him three times. Oh, that's in John chapter 13. So now their hopes, their dreams were sinking. Christ's words were like a mighty iceberg crashing into the hole of the Titanic view of the future for them. They were full of disillusionment, discouragement. They didn't understand what the Lord had just told them was going to happen, but everything seemed to be crashing down. The world was going to disintegrate in effect. And so Jesus, in John chapter 14 and verse 1, begins by saying, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So notice how the Lord, He has given this information to them that totally devastated and and exploded their understanding of the future. He told them He was leaving. He told them one of them would deny Him would betray Him and that Peter himself would deny the Lord three times. But he offsets that in verse 1 by saying, don't let your heart be troubled. And if you are a disciple, your heart is troubled. The news has troubled you dearly. But notice how he offsets the troubled heart. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you so that where I am there, you may be with me also. You see what he's doing? The key to lifting up the burdens of a burdened heart is to regain a fresh appreciation for the glory of the future. That I'm going away, yes, but my going away has a purpose. There is a plan. I'm going to make a dwelling place for you. And that ultimately is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth that Peter spoke of. My Father's house, there's many dwelling places there. And I'm going to pass through the cross. You don't understand this. But in effect, Jesus has got to pass through the cross where He will pay the full penalty for our sins. He'll be raised on the third day. He'll send up to His Father in heaven. And then when the time is right, He's going to make a new dwelling place. Which is again, ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And He says in verse 3, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back. Not telling you when, but I'm going to come back. And I'm going to receive you to Myself. And where I am, you're going to be with Me and we're going to be together forever. So we will be with Christ in this dwelling place forever. So that's the remedy for the troubled heart. Maybe you have a troubled heart here this morning. Maybe the circumstances of your life have been crowding around with all the potential for loss and damage and confusion. And you don't know what the future holds. And what Jesus would say to you is, don't let your heart be troubled. Look beyond your present circumstances and see the glory. Get out of your myopic little focus and look off into the distance and see the glory of the eternal state. And let that lift up your burdens and take away your trials. Believe in God. Believe in Me, Jesus says. And believe in this future dwelling place that I'm preparing for you. So that the troubles you have in your house now will disappear when you're in the Father's house then. And let that encourage you today. Christ will come again and all of your troubles will be left behind. So Christ is invigorating their faith he has burdened their faith by His news, but He's now lifting up their faith with this promise of the glory of the world to come. That future heavenly dwelling place. Now this place that Christ is preparing for us, it takes a faith vision to see it, and we only see it dimly in this life. Paul says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that, he, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. So, He's creating this dwelling place. We don't know much about it, but He wants us to gaze upon it with the eyes of faith. To again begin to stretch out our vision so that we can bring that more into focus 
so that we can draw the encouragement and the blessing for those who can see that hope clearly before them. So from here, let's move on to some of Paul's passages. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. All of these, I think, are designed to encourage us. Paul says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So notice what he he begins verse 20 with. For our citizenship is in heaven. So we have a heavenly citizenship. Now part of the uh, encouragement is in their day, as in our day, our earthly citizenship is is very imperfect. Ours, it seems like, recently has been eroding away at a phenomenal speed. Seems like the deep state has established a shadow government. And that's that's not even a conspiracy anymore. I mean, they're openly, in effect, almost saying it. A state within a state seems to control the corporations, the finances, the industries, the major portions of our own government bureaucracies against the consent of the governed, which our citizenship is a part of. That's what the Declaration of Independence, that's what our Constitution is that we're to be ruled by our government, but it's the consent of the governed by which they have their power. But all that seems to be uh, gradually eroding away. There's 87,000 new IRS agents who will be unleashed upon us. That doesn't sound real good. They're out to silence our opposition. The free speech is basically being taken away from us if we don't agree with our government. We should have the right to be able to voice our disagreements, but that's being taken away. Our First Amendment rights are we're being lost. Again, freedom of speech. Intimidated by the government to shut up, to be silent, or they'll throw you in jail. The right to a trial where you can even defend yourself can now be ruled null and void in certain situations. So much for our citizenship rights. They can raid your home, your personal property based on evidence that doesn't hold up. The rule of law seems to be evaporating. There's a lot of things about our earthly citizenship that's very discouraging right now. Now, I personally believe that Christ told us that we're to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's so that we have a duty and a responsibility as Christians to be involved in our government, to vote, to express our opinion, our views to those who rule over us because that's what our Caesar our government basically requires of us. And we need to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And our Caesar says that we vote in those people into office. And if we don't like the way things are going, then we vote them out. 
and we vote in other people. But even that is, is a, has been a trial. Trying to get uh, honest votes sometimes can be a, a difficult... All of this is to say is that our earthly citizenship has problems. And it's eroding. And that was true in Paul's day. The Roman citizenship, which he used, by the way, on a number of occasions to try to protect himself and promote the Gospel... He was a Roman citizen, Paul was. He used his, right, his rights very wisely to try to promote the freedoms and liberties of the church for the preaching of the gospel. But that ultimately failed because he was later on beheaded. Peter was crucified. Church tradition says upside down. Peter wasn't a Roman citizen. But these protections can be lost. And I think what Paul is saying, the point of this, is don't put all your faith in your earthly citizenship. Because it can be corroded and corrupted. And it can be diminished and taken away. But that won't happen to your citizenship, which is in heaven. Because God protects that one. He won't let George Soros into heaven to somehow... You know, buy off your citizenship rights. He'll protect them. I mean, when we get to heaven, who are we? We are children of the King. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We will actually judge the world and judge angels, believe it or not. That's the authority and the power of our heavenly citizenship that we have. So what Peter is wanting to do, regardless of the condition of the world status that you're in, he's saying draw comfort, draw encouragement to know that yeah, maybe your citizenship rights are, are, are evaporating in front of your eyes now. But look, look ahead. Look at the glory to come. Look at the citizenship that you have in heaven forever and ever and ever and rejoice in that. Be encouraged by that. Our decision, citizenship in heaven, this world cannot destroy. The demons can't vote and take it away. It's safe and secure and it is perfect. And Paul says that we are eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when He comes, He will transform this humble body into a body in conformity with the body of His glory. It will be a resurrection body. So this humble body now that's so prone to sickness and disease and pain and death will be conformed to the body of our Lord, glorified in beauty and honor. We'll have a perfect and glorified body, a perfect and glorified soul, We'll live in a perfect and glorified world with perfect and glorified righteousness and justice where righteousness dwells. That's the new heavens and the new earth. And only those who have turned from their sin and placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone have the right to go to this land. So, the result of this for the Apostle Paul in the very next verse, 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, there's a therefore. Every time we have a glimpse of the glory of the future and the Scriptures is encouraging us to stretch your vision out there. If it's blurry, bring it more into, into a clarity that the result of this is therefore chapter 4, verse 1, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. Your earthly citizenship may be dissolving, but your heavenly citizenship is eternal. So stand firm in Christ. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Stand firm in Christ. So the clarity of the vision of the future should encourage us to look beyond the trials of the day to stand firm in the Lord. Well, let's... uh, Move on quickly. We may not get through all of these verses, but let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This whole chapter, and it's a long chapter, is devoted to the future resurrection because Christ was raised from the dead, so shall all who belong to Him. We come all the way to verse 50 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 15, verse 50, and Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So what's he doing? He wants them to lift their eyes up and see the coming of the kingdom. But this kingdom is not this side of eternity because flesh and blood cannot inherit this kingdom. The perishable cannot inherit that which is imperishable. And this coming kingdom is an imperishable kingdom. And so now he begins to bring this incredible vision of this coming kingdom of glory. And he goes on to say, I'll just read it real quick. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And that's a euphemism for dying in Christ. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ now if you know anything about the book of first corinthians They're going through all kinds of struggles with sin and division and problems and trials. But to overcome that, to restore their joy, to restore their commitment, He brings the future glory in front of their eyes. So get out of your nearsightedness. 
regularly, deliberately look at the future from the pages of Scripture. Look at the glory that awaits every child of God and let that encourage you. There's this incredible kingdom that's imperishable. It's immortal. It's where the King of kings will dwell. And when Christ comes back in His glory, that's when He ushers in this kingdom and that's when we join Him in those dwelling places from His Father. John 14. Now there's a therefore that follows this one as well. At the end of all this incredible description of the future glory, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brother, this is how this truth should impact you today. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, let that future kingdom, which is imperishable, which you will enjoy forever and ever and ever, let that motivate you now to be involved in the work of the Lord, to be involved in the Gospel, to be involved in discipleship, to be involved in living for Jesus Christ. Be steadfast and movable. Always engaged in these things, knowing that all of your effort, all your work, all your toil is not in vain. You'll be rewarded forever in glory. Stay faithful to the Lord. So again, the whole focus of that imperishable kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, which will be there forever and ever, is designed to have a practical, sanctifying, motivating influence upon our lives today. Well, quickly moving on. You'll remember this one in 1 Peter chapter 1 for those who were with us when we went through 1 Peter. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that would be on the new earth which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. So here Peter is reminding them, and later on he'll say, you know, right now you're distressed by various trials and testings. But you know what? You find great joy as you think about the future glory. And he says, in this, in this salvation, this inheritance, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while if necessary, you've been tested by various trials. So Peter is design, designing this reference to the living hope, the future inheritance, to encourage them and to give them joy. Because if we all have that nearsighted focus and we're looking around and all we're seeing are all the bad things going on around us and we're seeing all the struggles and the trials and the disappointments in life and the frustrations of life, you're going to lose your joy in Christ. So what do we do? We get our eyes off the near stuff and we gaze upon the far away stuff, the heavenly stuff, the eternal things. And Peter says that can rekindle your joy in your life again. Because you can't take away those blessings, but you can lose them here. And so let that fill you with joy. And so he goes on, in verse 13, and says, therefore, here's the therefore, 
I told you about this imperishable inheritance. Now here's the therefore. This is how you need to respond. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. For living for Christ now. Be sober in spirit. But don't you ever stop. You continue to fix your hope not on the here and now, not on people that can fail us, not on riches. You put your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you fix your hope there, you'll never be disappointed. So focus there. Moving along quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorites. Paul says to the Corinthian church again in his second letter, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I love this. In verse 16, Paul says his outer man is decaying. Was it ever? Now, now we know, we know the reality of the outer man is decaying. You know, you get older, the body just starts wearing down, wearing out. We get, uh, health issues, problems from the left and the right. And we can in some way identify with this outer man is decaying. But the Apostle Paul it takes on a whole new level of decay. Uh, earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote these words, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Paul as an apostle living for Christ, preaching the Gospel, lived in a world that hated Christ. It hated Him. It hated the Gospel. And physically, his outer man received all kinds of afflictions and persecutions. Later on in chapter 11, he'll add to this of his own experience. He says, "...in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Jewish 39 lashes." Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I've spent in the deep. That means lost out in the sea. I've been on frequent journeys and in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea. I've been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst. 
often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these external things, there's a daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. To the Galatian church, he says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. From all the beatings, from all the whippings, from all the being hit with rods, being stoned. Can you imagine Paul's body? You think you have aches and pains? I mean, he was stoned with rocks, big rocks, breaking bones, may have had a divot in his skull. Here's a man whose outer man was decaying. And it was decaying in ways probably far greater than we can know. And yet, the incredible thing in verse 16 is he says, we don't lose heart because our inner man is being renewed day by day. The outer man is decaying but the inner man is being renewed. And I find that it's incredible. How do you not lose heart when the whole world seems to be against you and they're beating you up on a regular cycle? They're coming in and afflicting pain upon you. And he says the key is our inner man is being renewed day by day. And the reason why it's being renewed is because my focus is not on the problems, the suffering, the persecution, the tribulation of today. That myopic, nearsighted focus. I have lifted my eyes up and I see clearly the glory that awaits us in heaven. So I am not discouraged. I have not lost heart. Matter of fact, my inner man is being renewed day by day because of the power of the future glory that I see is having that kind of an impact upon me physically. So while the outer man is being beat up, the inner man is being built up. It's like a house that's on the outside. It's growing more and more dilapidated. The paint's peeling. The shingles are deteriorating. The wood's rotting. It's being totally remodeled. A makeover on the inside. And Paul knows all of his pain, all of his suffering has a sanctifying purpose. And it will produce, in verse 17, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Your trials, your struggles, your testings today that are refining your faith are going to add to your enjoyment and add to your glory in heaven far beyond all comparison as we look to the Lord and trust Him in the midst of it. And then in verse 8, he says that we look not at the things that are seen, that myopic vision, but we look at the things that are not seen, i.e. invisible things. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And that's the focus of his heart. Because he knows that all the temporal blessings that we have in this life are temporal. You can lose every single one of them. But also your afflictions are temporal. One day you will lose them as well. And Paul kept his eyes on the eternal weight of glory ahead. It takes a far-sighted vision to see that 
and, and the outlines, the faint outlines that Scripture gives to us. But that's the focus and that's where the joy comes from. It's like the groom, when he's standing up there on the stage, does he look around, look at his, his best man? Does he look at all the bridesmaids? His eyes are on his bride that are coming down the aisle, off in the distance, coming through the door. And his focus is on his bride. And what Paul is telling us, I think, in effect, is when we look at the bridegroom, the coming of Christ, flipping the analogy that we can see and have the glory and have the, that renewing grace of the Spirit when we gaze upon the glory of the future. Yes, as Paul will say, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we see the glory of the heaven to come in a very faint way. Now we see and taste only a few clusters of the grapes from the promised land. But taste what you can and see what you can and pray for greater clarity of what lies in the future. Because there is a banquet table. There is a feast that the Lord Himself will give for all of His children when we have arrived in His presence forever and ever. Well, I'm just... Uh, Romans 8, just real quick. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, the glory... The future glory, you can't compare what you're going through today, the sufferings and trials, with the glory that awaits for us. So lift your eyes up and, and gain the joy that comes from looking forward. Stretching your vision so that you can see those distant things more clearly. John says, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So we look forward to the coming of Christ. When He comes, we shall be like Him. Your whole nature will be purified and glorified. No more sin. And if you relish that, if you long for that, if you desire that, John says, if you have this hope fixed on Him, then it will purify you. It will bring sanctifying grace into your life now. Well, let's conclude real quickly with Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 21, if you will, please. We'll try to wrap this up. In Revelation chapter 21, Starting in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is what Peter was talking about. We've been promised a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's an imperishable kingdom that will last forever and ever. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell with them. That's the John 14. This is where Jesus brings this into fulfillment. He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now this is only for God's people. If you're here and you're not a believer, and you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, and you're not living a life where you're following the Lamb, this is not for you. What you get is verse 8. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But those who have turned from their sin and embraced Jesus Christ, we look forward to the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Starting in verse 10, John describes this incredible vision of the new Jerusalem. Notice in verse 18, he says that the material of the wall... Well, let me just back up. The new Jerusalem, there's 12 gates and the twelve gates have the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There are twelve foundation stones, and they all have the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then you go into the city, and it's, and it's made with all these incredible precious stones. Verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. So obviously... John is using figurative language here to describe the glory of the New Jerusalem because we don't... What is pure gold that's like clear glass? Like transparent gold. We don't have any of that stuff in this world. So he's using an element of figures of speech to help us to see what we can understand in terms of the glory to come. He goes on and says in verse 21 that the twelve... Gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass again. This is, this is phenomenal. This is otherworldly. This is not gold like we have gold in this world because it's transparent. So this is an incredible description of it. He goes on and describes it more. And then we come to verse chapter 22. And here John begins to describe the, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem in language that's fitting with the Garden of Eden back in Genesis. In verse 1, he says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life. So remember the Garden of Eden had the river that flowed out, branched into four branches. It had the tree of life. Here bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And he says there will no longer be any curse. Can you imagine that? No more curse. 
from Adam's sin that brought curse upon us and curse upon the cosmos, all that curse has been removed and everything has been glorified. There will be no longer any curse, no sin, no death, no suffering, no disappointment. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. Heaven is not going to be an idle place. As J.I. Packer said, what shall we do in heaven? Not lounge around, but worship and work and think and communicate and serve and enjoy activity and beauty and people and God. First and foremost, however, He said, we shall see and love Jesus our Savior, our Master, and our Friend. Back to verse 3. The bondservants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And then He goes on and says there's no more night and He continues this incredible description of the future glory that awaits every child of God. The contrast with Genesis is striking. In Genesis 1, we have the creation of the world. In Revelation 21-22, we have the creation of the new world, the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis, we have the creation cursed. In Revelation 22, we have the creation redeemed and the curse reversed. In Genesis 3, we have mankind fallen into sin. In Revelation 21 and 22, we have the elect clothed in righteousness in the presence of God. In Genesis, we had paradise lost. Here we have paradise restored. In Genesis, we have man lost, running, hiding from the presence of God. Here we have the saints beholding the face of God in glory forever. In Genesis, we have man barred from the tree of life. Here we have the saints eating of the tree of life. In Genesis, Adam's sin brought into the world sin and sorrow and misery and pain and suffering. But in this new world, there is no more sin, sorrow, tears, no more curse, no more death. It's where righteousness dwells. And so what Peter and Paul and John, all they're telling us to do is look. Get your eyes off your myopic circumstances around you. Lift up your eyes and see the glory that awaits you. And let that future blessedness infuse your soul now with joy and hope and courage to live for Christ today. The revelation of the future glory is given to us for our benefit. It's designed to revive us and encourage us in our worship and our service of Christ. And I love the story, and I've told it before, but people, their boat went down out in the middle of the sea, and they're in a lifeboat. And they've been in that lifeboat for days. They're without food. They're without water. They're being baked under the hot sun. 
They're parched, dry. Their life is slowly being sucked out of their bodies. They're languishing. They're without any energy, without any strength, without any hope. And one of them finds the energy to lift himself up, to look over the side of of the lifeboat, and he sees land. And he yells out, Land, I see land. And his words invigorate the others in the lifeboat and they rise up and they see the land and instills hope in them and courage and strength to grab the oars and make their way to land for safety and rescue. And that's what the the future land of the new heavens and the earth is designed to do to us today. That your life may feel like it's dry and it's barren and you have all these troubles and trials and difficulties of your life and you're getting depressed and discouraged and hopeless. And what the Scriptures would say, yeah, those those are real experiences, but lift your eyes up. See the land to come. See Canaan's shore. See the promised land and the glory and the beauty that awaits us there. And let that infuse hope and joy and grace into your soul now. Stop and exercise your spiritual eyes to gaze onward and upward to fight against that natural myopia that we all struggle with. And as a result, therefore, our spirit can be revived, our joy can be restored, and we can live in this life with 2020 vision. We see what's near clearly, but we see it in faith in light of what we see clearly as the future glory to come. The land, the Father's house, the glory of heaven, which is designed to encourage us today. Well, well may, may the Lord heal our eyes to see that future hope with greater clarity. So let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You for Peter's reminder that every child of God has been promised the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And Father, we don't see a lot of righteousness in the world in which we live We see a lot of sin. We see a lot of corruption. We see a lot of evil. We struggle with sin in our own hearts. We can become discouraged and depressed just by our own problems. Just by our own spiritual struggles. And Lord, we need hope and we need help. But You've given to us in Your Word, Lord, just a faint glimpse of the glory yet to come that You continually parade before our eyes in Scripture. And You would have us to train our eyes to look more frequently and more often at the beauty and the glory of the land yet to come. That it might encourage our hearts today. Father, help us. We can get so bogged down in today that we lose the joy of that blessed hope that lies ahead. So Lord, help us to be more focused on the distant future. 
the hope of Christ's return, the blessed hope of His coming, the Father's house, the mansions that are waiting there, that land which will last forever where righteousness dwells. And give us hope and joy today. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.